Hi everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. You're all in for an absolute treat this week because we had the ever so wonderful Holly Ringland on the podcast. In this episode, Lauren, Holly's editor from Legend Press, speaks to her about her upcoming novel, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, which is out today, as well as discussing how she came to write such a beautiful, emotional, moving novel. A big thank you to WF Howes who have provided the first chapter of the Seven Skins of Esther Wilding audiobook, which is included at the end of this episode. Enjoy! As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Let's dive in then. Let's do it. So... The most obvious question, which was obviously going to be my first one, was um, where did the inspiration for the book come from? And I know that you give a beautiful explanation on your website. There is a recording of you explaining your inspiration. And so I... I mean, it, it just, it summed it up perfectly, but I would love if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't, if you could repeat it if you could let us know or unless there's more being added but yeah where what inspired you how did it how did you of write course. this <laughs> of course Lauren. I know I think how did I write this book and I'm like my god do we all have 12 <laughs> years for me to dive into the Russian phone that is <laughs> I think how any book gets written is kind of a whole life story um but to put everybody at ease that's not what we'll do today uh <laughs> I think there's, I think there's sort of different ways to answer this question. And um, I think that the truest one is that uh, this book found me way before I was ready for it to find me. Uh, It was 2018. I had just sent off the final edits of my first novel to my Australian publisher, Catherine. And uh, we had done approximately 483 million uh, drafts of edits. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think I stopped counting. Genuinely, I think I stopped counting at about the 17th round of edits um, mm-hmm. on my first novel. Wow. And so by the time uh, by the time we sort of went to final edit, um, my brain had been so deeply in that story. And also in all of the emotions with it being my first novel and it being um, a a story that comes very much from my own life and body and story. And uh, Catherine's saying to me, that's it, we're done. The next step is we go to print. Uh, It was bewildering to me. And I remember really clearly she said to me, you can go and read for pleasure now Mm -hmm. because while I was deep in the world of that book, uh, I was reading about Australian native flowers, for example, or I was, um, I was reading about uh, the coastline where I grew up or the desert in Australia where I lived because I wrote the entire first draft at my desk in Manchester, but I wasn't reading for pleasure. So I went into my office after I'd sent off the manuscript and I was home alone and I made a cup of tea and it felt a little bit like 
I didn't know I was doing something forbidden and and mischievous because I was looking at my bookshelves full of my to be read file, which honestly could circumnavigate the earth. Uh, and I, um, I noticed the title that jumped out at me from the shelves was a book of Swedish fairy tales by a writer named Helena Nyblom. My people, my ancestors that I descend from are Celtic and Scandinavian. So in I, in my first sort of few months, when I arrived in Manchester back in 2009, there were always these amazing, just pop-up book markets on Oxford Road going through the university precinct. And those guys selling those books know what they're doing because all of the university students walking Mm -hmm. past who love books, who have no money for books or room or space, we were always in there like magpies kicking over everything. And I bought this book of Swedish fairy tales. So five years later, here I am. And I finally pull it down off my bookshelf and I think to myself, yes, a Swedish fairy tale. This comes from the region of my ancestors. This is exactly what I need. I know what I'm going to get. It's going to be once upon a time. It's going to be probably damsel in distress. It's going to be probably some golden haired boy rocks up and saves everything. But I was like, you know what? It's predictable and it will be magical. And, and that's fine. That's what I need to remember how to read and to ease my brain back into things. I open the book and decide to read the fairy tale that I open the book on, and it's a story called All the Wild Waves. And a shiver went down my back. I am a woman who was raised a block from the Pacific Ocean on the Aboriginal country called Bunjalung country in the southeast corner of Queensland in Australia. I was a block from the sea at all times. Um, if I had to put on socks in winter time, that heralded a bitter cold winter <laughs> season. Uh, so the sea has very much always been a part of my making, my uh, my upbringing. And I just got this shiver down my spine when I saw the title and I sat down on the floor in my office with my cup of tea and I thought, right, I'm just going to sit here with nothing to do but read this story. Very briefly, the story is about a woman named Violanta who is growing up in the mountains with her mother and brother, and she lives beside a stream. And Violanta's whole desire for her whole life is to get to the sea. She she looks at the stream one day, and the stream tells her that it runs all the way to the waves. It runs all the way to the ocean. So Violanta decides to leave everything she knows in the night and follow this stream to get to the sea. Along the way, she is offered a hand in marriage, a really good job in a flour mill. She comes across uh, a a woman who has her own home and garden and books and trees, and this woman's name is Penserosa, and she has crystals and there are butterflies in the garden, and this, this story was published in 1910. So Penserosa is an independent woman, but the thing about Penserosa that Violanta discovers is that she can't use her legs. She is maimed from the knee down because God forbid in 1910, we were single women with our own agency and we had the use of our legs. <laughs> so, uh, so Penserosa offers Violanta a place in her house with her library and all of the magic and 
by Atlanta thinks about it and she thinks, I must get to the sea. It's all I want with my life. So I'm going to give you a, a small spoiler. Violanta gets to the sea finally and she walks towards the ocean and she outreaches her arms and the waves rise up and she is full of yearning and the waves turn black and green and they start screaming at her, do you know us now? And then the final scene of the fairy tale is Violanta's body lying lifeless in the ocean because the sea has killed her. Wow. <laughs> I, that's, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I threw the book. I threw it. I, and the spine hit the wall. And I was, I, my heart was pounding and I felt slapped. I felt slapped by the fairy tale. I did pick up the book and stroke it very apologetically thereafter. <laughs> but, but the resounding feeling that I had following that shiver down my spine was, oh my God, this is the heart of the next novel. From, from there, I started reading about Helena Nyblom and she was, uh, she was a Scandinavian fairy tale writer that was part of a collective of female artists at the time in Scandinavia who have become to be known in English as the masked collective or the masked artists. And these were women who are known to have embedded feminist messages in their work. So remembering that in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, for the same reason that all the Bronte sisters gave themselves masculine names to get published, Helena Nyblom was embedding fairy tales about women being punished for having desire and ambition in amongst stories for children. So you flick to the story either side in this collection of Swedish fairy tales and it's like the one before All the Wild Waves is like, oh, the golden-haired princess, like, walked outside <laughs> and birds, like, landed on her shoulders. And, <laughs> and the one after it is like, you know, one day there was a little sprite that, you know, went to, you know, everything that we're used to, all the tropes that we know so well, and embedded in amongst it is this, is this warning tale, mm. this cautionary tale mm. of a woman who followed her heart and, sur and surrendered nothing to follow her dream and she paid the ultimate price for it. And so I started wow. knowing that so many of my ancestors are Danish and come from Copenhagen, just in that geeky way that we have. I was sitting at my desk reading about Helena Nyblom. Everything is telling me she's Swedish. I'm thinking oh, God, I wish she was Danish, mm -hmm. you know, in that way that I was, like, plotting my stories of my Danish ancestors that I grew up at my granny's kitchen table in Queensland hearing mm -hmm. about their emigration from Copenhagen, spending three months on a boat, sailing to Queensland. And the clincher of that story is that there was um, my ancestral grandmother was on board with a coat and she hid a baby that wasn't on passenger lists in her coat. 
And the story I heard at Granny's Table to my fairy tale loving kid mind was, oh my God, she was a seal woman. She was a selkie. That was her seal skin and she hid her baby. So all of this is swirling in my head mm. as I'm researching Helen and Nyblum. And I'm thinking as I'm reading about her, I wish she was Danish because that story of my ancestors was really sort of rising to the front of my mind while I was reading mm -hmm. about her. And then I discovered that it's only history that remembers Helena Nyblom as Swedish because she married a Swede. She was born and bred in Copenhagen. She grew up with Hans Christian Andersen coming to visit her father for tea. <laughs> and then I'm sitting there and I had this image of this woman hiding feminist texts in stories and all of a sudden I saw her in her Victorian dress up to her neck and down to her wrists and ankles and underneath I had this flash of her covered in tattoo symbols of her fairy mm. tales mm. And I'm thinking about seal skins and I'm thinking about my ancestral grandmother hiding a baby from the passenger lifts in her coat to emigrate from Denmark to Australia. And I, I just Googled, where is the oldest operating tattoo parlour in the Western world? And the answer was in Niehaven in Copenhagen. fear in my head about you know writing a second book and everybody already saying to me what's next when I hadn't even mm. finished first mm. but all of this happened in this magical wild crazy day of following gingerbread crumbs and the stories from my childhood and my ancestors sort of rising to meet those crumbs and it really just blew my mind so that was the beginning of the Incredible. seven pins of Esther Wilding. Mm, and yeah. and that that was the genesis. It's it's incredible. It's a it's a beautiful sort of um coming together of your own personal, you know, history or family, the ancestry, mm. you know, the line mm. alongside um feminism and folklore and, and fairy tales mm. and your own storytelling as well it's just this like I say this beautiful sort of swirling cocktail of all of these brilliant yes. ingredients that no wonder I adore this book it's just got everything oh. <laughs> it does I, I, I promised myself I try not to gush too much when talking to you because you're your book, you know, because I could talk for hours. I could, and it's 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 not about me. I have to remember that. Um, but you know, uh, the... Lauren, uh, it is about you. I'm not here without you. Let me just get that very straight, please. Um, you know, and I just the book itself, and, and and one of my questions. I'm sorry if it's not on my on my list, but as we're talking, no, I've just absolutely. You know, it's it's what resonates with readers, and as you are you know, on the festival circuit at the moment and, and all of the promotion mm. involved, you know, I'm sure the answer is that it resonates in different ways for different people and that you get that mm. firsthand feedback from readers. And I can't begin to imagine how special that mm. is. 
And even, you know, when I was reading it, like I find it difficult to put into words exactly um, why it resonated with me. Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I have a sister, you know, in the book, I'm going to desperately try and avoid spoilers, but, you know, explores, (laughs) um, siblings, you know, that sisterhood, Mm. is it, um, no, I can't, I'm desperate to try and avoid these spoilers. (laughs) Why, why does it resonate? Yeah. 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 And what is it? Why do you, what, why do you think it does? What, what is the most common answer I would say? (laughs) It's, um, that's such a beautiful question. And it's, um, it's the gift that readers give me actually, because I, I only know how to write if I write from the place inside of myself that is sore with the the truth, the painful, beautiful truth of being a human, because to be human means that we love and we lose. And I, I can only write from that place. And underneath that place is the source inside of me of the fact that I've wanted to be a writer and have loved stories since my amazing, beautiful mum gave me the gift of teaching me to read when I was three years old. So <clears throat> I can't read my own work in a, in a sense. I can write it and I know where it comes from in me, mm-hmm. but, but the magic that Carl Sagan talks about in you know with books being what they are the reason that books are proof that humans are capable of working magic is that it all starts with a tree the tree becomes paper the paper is something I put marks on those marks go out to other people which they read and gives them pictures and emotions in their head and then they take that into their body and that story becomes something that means something to them in that way, that's how Esther and the Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, that's how Esther's story takes life. That's how she lives and, and breathes. And the, the, the things readers have told me about what this book means to them has taken the place that it came from in my body, in my life, because stories are very embodied to me. I... My stomach churns while I'm writing them. My temples pound. I get sweaty palms. I cry. I laugh. I sweat. Like I get emotion sweat. Mm. So, so it does very much come from my body. And and readers tell me that what they feel, and this is what blows my mind, what they feel while they're reading it, is very similar to what I feel while I'm writing it. But the meaning of the story takes on sort of galaxies to them that I could never have imagined. I I think what resonates about this novel is the fact that joy and grief are not something we can disentangle from our human experience. If we numb, we can't selectively numb what we feel. If we numb ourselves to grief, it means we also will numb ourselves to feeling the full vastness of joy and the power of believing that we are worthy of accepting and feeling good love so I think that's a core thing that Mm. people respond to the book 
is also about what happens when we make decisions with the best of intentions, but they nevertheless are fueled by shame. And the book is about what happens when those decisions mean that we are keeping secrets from the people closest to us because there is too much painful shame and vulnerability involved in speaking the truth about what we've lived, what we've experienced, what we fear, what troubles us about who we are, and even how hard it is sometimes to have the courage to say what we want Mm -hmm. in the world without fear or guilt choking us and convincing us that we're not worthy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think finally there's, there's that theme that so many of us can relate to of just worrying that we're not enough, that we can't live full lives because we can't possibly be enough to be worthy of mm-hmm. feeling fully, feeling mm-hmm. with all of us, feeling all of grief to process it, to love what we've lost, to grieve what we've lost and feeling the joy of what can still come in that loss and how Mm -hmm. powerful letting ourselves love and be loved is. Mm. Also, the power of a bloody good 80s party, the power of of (laughs) Shira, the power of how we choose to tell our stories, Mm-hmm. The fact that even when stories are too painful for us to verbally tell them, we still find our ways. Like in my, it's really interesting to me, in my first novel, the way that people told their stories was through a language of Australian native flowers. In my second novel, and this wasn't planned, the way women tell their stories is through tattooing as a form of storytelling. So I think all of these themes, are why readers have given me the gift of telling me what these characters and how Esther's journey has become alive and meant something profound to them. And mm-hmm. the messages that I receive, they completely destroy me. Like I'm, <laughs> some of them just leave me like, uh, I need to just lie down with a cup of tea and a heat yeah. pillow in my eyes to yeah. just sort of um, process with incredible. Deep- gratitude and all yeah that I, is, I just talked about all of that without one spoiler Lauren that's that's that is impressive <laughs> forget everything else <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know I mean when it comes to um fiction when it comes to stories you know and and you know we love stories we I mean I'm in publishing. You, you, you obviously, um, are kind of good at writing, but you know, you know, we, it's this, this, this love, this passion for the story. Right. And it's something that wherever, whatever, whatever stage, whatever age of, you know, you are, it's, it's something that surrounds us, whether that's yeah, books or, um, in the media, And I think then as you grow up, those two key themes, you know, joy and grief, we as humans experience, for most people, both of of them, 
both of those mm. things at different mm. times in different ways. And I think the beautiful thing about fiction, the beautiful thing about stories is that no matter who you are and where you live and what stage you are at in life, mm. reading connects you. And it, and it can connect mm. up all of these different minds all around the world, you know, and it can mm. teach you about um, empathy. You can learn yes. so much from fiction. Yes. And I think perhaps that's, for me anyway, one of the most stunning things about your novel is that I felt as though it was tailor-made. You know, I felt Aww. as though I was reading and you were talking to me and I was reflecting and it really, if anything, feeling like I was um, being seen and, and felt, you know, connected Aww. is um, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's something I genuinely treasure and I, I only hope that more and more readers have that experience because there is nothing better than than feeling seen and being seen so i think you know with a novel to be able to do that that you know that escapism that 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 thing that you pick up to just sort of step out of life for a moment um if it can speak to you in a way that can then connect you back to your everyday and give you strength Yes, I only hope that more more and more readers get to experience oh, that. That's, that's so beautiful. Thank you for saying that. That will never. God, if no, we've been on for four minutes, then I'm going to start sobbing. I'm going <laughs> to offend everyone's like British emotional capacity with <laughs> capacity within our first four minutes on the podcast. Well, don't make me cry. Too, I'm <laughs> the Brit. For too long. I know. I've forgotten. I've forgotten how to hold myself together. Uh, I think. I think what you're. I think what you're saying is so spot on about the power of. I mean, all good writing. I think has that. Um, has that power to it. And by good writing, I mean something that has come from a true place in the writer. I'm not talking about technical ability or anything that bad. I think good writing is when it comes from a true place in the person that's writing whatever the piece is about. And specifically with fiction, um, one of my favourite authors since I was 21 is Alice Hoffman, and she is the uh, novelist who has taught me that fiction is emotional truth. Fiction can tell emotional truth in a way that perhaps no other form of writing or storytelling can because it is unencumbered, it is free, that emotional truth is free to pour onto the page because it is unconstrained in fiction, it lives in fiction. And there's um, another American author named Tom Spanbauer who lives in my mind, who talks about fiction is the lie that allows us to tell the truth truest. And those two, those two things encapsulate for me what the power of fiction can do to our inner lives and how that flows through into our outer lives. Because as you were saying, we are hardwired as human beings to make 
sense of being alive through story. And sometimes the most powerful story that can hold a light up to things that we don't know or can't understand about ourselves or to feeling unseen or feeling alone is fiction because it is a story that allows us to take our own imaginations into it. And in that imaginary landscape, we are free and safe to feel in a way that we maybe aren't in other aspects of our life. So I, I, absolutely, there just couldn't be anything more meaningful, honestly, to, to know that, um, all I've ever wanted to do since I was a kid was write stories that matter to me that might matter to other people mm-hmm. and to know and right from the beginning, right from when you and I have first met uh, with Esther, to know that you love her and feel her and all of the characters in her story and mm-hmm. the journey that she goes from from Lutruwitta, which is Tasmania, to Copenhagen, to the Faroe Islands, that just makes all of it mm. just mm. so meaningful. It just, it's wow. just everything that you, that I at least, crave as a writer because it doesn't live if I just write it. Esther lives when she's read. Mm-hmm. So that's Oh, but I think, you. you know, if for, for anybody who, who will be listening, who, who hasn't read it yet, you know, yes, we've talked about um, these these emotions and the journey, you know, side mm. of it. But it also I mean, the book made me laugh. It, it's it's she yes. I was there alongside her. I was I was traveling, you know, going to these different yes. places I've never been to. And and mm. I mean, it just um it just it just ticks all of these different boxes for so many different reasons that I think readers, like I say, from anywhere at any point, will take something from it, mm. will gain something from it. Oh, and, I hope um, so. and that's that's what you that's what I I look for, whether I'm reading, you know, for work or for for pleasure, yes. you know. Just what that that kind of yeah what can I the selfish part of me is sort of like okay but how mm. can I sort of you know connect with this and um mm. and that's what that's exactly what the book does you know mm. um what I also wanted to um sort of ask you about because obviously um you know we're talking to we're, we're talking about book lovers and readers and mm. and so on and, and and as I say you're you're sort of in the deep end with the promotion side of it at the moment as Mm. well but then also the very exciting news about the amazon prime series for your first novel i mean oh yes how how does your mind wrap around (laughs) the fact there's going to be a visual you know interpretation of your novel as well no 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 No, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure that um, being the book lover that you are and the creative spirit that you are and anybody who is listening to us who has that little creative fire in their heart, no matter how small or large it is, 
there is a really universal truth that many of us have probably experienced in our lives where somebody in the world or the world has asked us who we are. And maybe we were very young when we answered that we were artists or in my case, I want to grow up and be a writer. Like I want to be a writer when I'm big. Um, And the world is not kind to brave souls that put those things into words because there is the very common and in many ways, I suppose, sound response of, you know, something along the lines of, oh, that's cute, but what's your real job going to be? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. what But what are you going to do for a day job? Like not mm-hmm. everybody gets to be a la da writer or a professional chef or a dancer or a, or a gardener designer, you know, anything mm-hmm. that is underpinned mm-hmm. by creativity. The point being that I think I got sick of being um, – shut down when I was answering that question by the time I was kind of in grade 11 or 12 and the school guidance counselor, um, you know, I was a teenager. I was raised by an incredible single mum, and she came to school and it was like, I think it was my senior year of high school. And the guidance counselor was like, um, now Holly has her best marks in English, uh, maths, not so much. And mum and I were like moving right along. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guidance counselor was like, Holly says on her form here that she wants to be a writer, but that's a really tough nut to crack. So I suggest that she uh, studies teaching at university and becomes a teacher. So even in that moment where that is very sound advice, figures of authority in, in the final time that I dared to say that aloud, figures of authority never said, you go for that. You write like your life depends on it and you love the joy that you get out of it. Also, you're going to need to pay rent and clothe and feed yourself and be safe. So like here are options for how we could balance the thing that sustains you with the job that's going to help Mm -hmm. you. The point of all of this, Lauren, being that I wrote the first, I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart when I was 34 years old in Manchester, I had finished my MA of creative writing at the University of Manchester years before, well, when I say years, about two and a half years before Mm -hmm. I'd graduated. And there's so much expectation in particular after graduating an MA, it's like, and now I will, and here is the novel, ta-da! And Mm -hmm. it didn't happen like that for me. And I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart um, I, I finally crossed the line, excuse me, between absolute strangling procrastination and action. I crossed that line between the two. Finally, uh, it took, and sadly, it took somebody beloved in my family, uh, dying and me being with them in hospital as they died to shake me out of Mm. fear's shackles Mm. because I was so terrified of failing as a writer. I was so terrified of rejection, of humiliation, of finding out I wasn't good enough, of finding out I wasn't smart enough to do this thing that I've known about myself since I was a kid. 
who would I be if I tried to write a book and it all went tits up and then, Mm -hmm. and then who am I? And then what do I do? And so I, I didn't try because, and it wasn't for lack of trying. It was just so chronic in me, the fear that my brain could not speak to my hand Mm -hmm. to move Mm -hmm. my pen Mm -hmm. or to tap out at my keyboard. My imagination was this deeply hidden away thing that I just couldn't access. And it was the death of a family member that finally made me realize how incredibly dangerous and how incredibly boring fear is because it's just asking us to not try. It's just saying, stop, stop. And you're safe. Stop. Don't risk it. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. in the madness of my grief in 2014, I was 34 and this person who had died, he was like one of my biggest champions. Mm -hmm. And the last lucid thing he said to me was, if you can't write this novel, because he knew that I wanted to write this story that was circling me and was in me. And he said, if you can't write this novel for you, you must write it for those of us who are invested in you. That was the last thing he said to me. No pressure. Wow. Thanks. Beloved. Wow. <laughs> and so grieving him and feeling the full weight of the madness of grief in that moment, I went into my office in Manchester and the the fear that I was living with was underpinned by years, decades of post-traumatic stress that stemmed from having lived a lot of my life in cycles of male-perpetrated violence. And so the trauma that I carried from living cyclically around and with violent men came with me into my life after I swore that no man would lay a finger on me again. Mm -hmm. That's what the fear was underpinned by 2014 at my desk in the madness of grief about losing this family member. I go into my office. I sit there and I say to myself, looking out at the silver birch trees through my window and the red bricks of Manchester. And I said to myself, 10 minutes, what would happen if for 10 minutes you didn't listen to how shit you are and how much you can't do this? Mm -hmm. What would happen if you just tried to come from that space inside you that loves stories? What if you let that kid sit down at this desk who loved stories? Lauren, I swear to God, I watched my hand. I took, I'd done everything right. Like I had the moleskin. I had the fountain pen. Hemingway had a moleskin. I was like, well, if Hemingway had a moleskin, I need a moleskin. Like I had, I did everything. I don't, I don't know why I was taking advice from dead white guys, but there we are. And so uh, I, I remember really clearly taking the cap off my fountain pen and watching my hand. And it really did feel like I was outside of myself watching my hand and I watched myself write this sentence in the weatherboard house at the end of the lane nine-year-old Alice Hart sat at her desk by the window and dreamed of ways to set her father on fire so that is that is the moment and I sat back and I thought holy shit what is this That was 2014, Lauren. I wrote Mm -hmm. the book 
from 2014 to 2016. I wrote it by convincing myself no one would read it, but that I just really needed to put it on paper because I believed in it. Uh, I had a really, I have a really, really beautiful friend in my life who is also an author and she was in Europe on book tour at the time. Her name's Brooke Davis. And Brooke came and stayed with me in Manchester and she read the first three chapters and she said to me, I really want to send these to my agent. She sent them to her agent. Her agent became my agent. It turned out that no one reading my book is not true because The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart has been published in 30 territories (laughs) around the world. And in a very short while... It is going to be on Amazon Prime as a seven-episode series starring Sigourney Weaver. No, I mean, God, honestly, come on. And, <laughs> Lauren, I mean, I'm just close now to making whale sonar noises like, <laughs> to, try and, to try and express. And, and the reason why I talk about where, like the reason why I share that origin story, if you like, and the reason why I share all of this is because none of this has happened overnight. This is so unlikely that it would ever be anything that would happen to me. And and it all, I, you know, you can trace it all back to the, all the small decisions that you make, choosing to leave a relationship that was bad for me, the last one that would be bad for me. Mm-hmm. choosing to move to England to follow my dream of becoming my writer, of becoming a writer and starting my life over again and trying to find my way back to myself after that relationship and and and, and studying the MA at the University of Manchester and all education is a privilege and it shouldn't be, but it is. And I had life savings from my work at home in Australia that I used to put myself through school. That was an incredible privilege, but I didn't come to England to do the MA because I thought that would make me a novelist. I came to England to do the MA because I was just terrified of falling through the floor of my own life. Mm -hmm. And if I just Mm -hmm. followed that dream and had that structure that, that maybe I could see what I could become if I listened to that one thing that I've known about myself that's never changed no matter what's mm. happened to me, mm. which was wanting to write and wanting to tell stories. So the fact now that we're sort of so close to this series being launched on Amazon Prime, with, and I mean, it's not just Sigourney Weaver. The entire cast is unbelievable it's, you know, Asha Keddy, Leah Purcell, Alicia Debnam Carey, Frankie Adams. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And I I think sedatives are the way. I think sedatives <laughs> are the future. That's the only way. Yeah. I think yeah. I think I'll I'll be texting you, dropping like some sort of pill with my glass of wine, you know, when I mean I completely agree. Yeah. I I I mm. I just, you know, commend your bravery because I think to, and, 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 you know, I am sorry that you have experienced, um, pain and loss, of course, you know, as a, as a human to another human, I, I, I would never wish it upon anybody, 
my, I mean, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to make it sound sort of superficial, but the incredible positive from Mm. that, you know, has been this, um, what appears to be this strength, this incredible strength Mm. that you have. And that, um, as I say, that bravery to take the plunge and yes, address that constant that had been inside you for Mm. as long as you can remember and, and Mm. just look at what, what was the result of that and continue Mm. the ripple effect, as I said before about connecting readers, you know, we are, um, Mm. all just people trying to get along at the end of the day, just trying to deal the cards were dealt. And that some people get dealt a very difficult hand and, mm. um, it, and it's all different to different people. It's all relative, isn't it? So it's mm. also then where you go with that. And I think there is something really mm. beautiful to be found in grief, in I the, agree. the hard times, I agree. You know? And I, mm. I would never wish it upon somebody. I am not saying that no. you can only be a great human if you have suffered. You know, I, I'm not saying any of those things. All I am trying to poorly articulate is that um, if there is any positive to be taken from these, mm. you know, cards that you're dealt, then just look at the way that you can shine, just look at what it can then make yeah. you into. And that self-reflection, yeah. that kind of looking in on yourself and thinking, okay, this is my situation. This is what's happening. Mm. This is what's happened, whatever it may be. Mm. What, where do I go from here? And there's a lot of yeah. courage to be taken yes. from that. Yeah. So, um, And it's quite ancient, I think, this idea like the Roman philosophers used to talk about the wound is the way, you know, the obstacle is the way. And I couldn't agree more about, I mean, while we are in grief, while we are displaced by grief, while we are making horrendously bad decisions for ourselves, as our beloved Esther does in, you know, the first few chapters of the novel, because she she is operating fully um, out of grief and not out of feeling or managing the grief, it is almost impossible to sit with yourself and to say there will there are going to be there is going to be beauty that is going to come out of this. There will be strength. There will be courage. I will know myself at a level that I didn't know myself before because of this. I mean, in my experience of grief, I don't want to think about any of that when you're in it, you just want Mm. it to be over. Mm, And that's, and, but, but the, the, the irrefutable truth that people who have gone through the most unfathomable horrors when they emerge on the other side of the horrors, and that's not to say that they have recovered from it or they have healed from it, but when they are not in the crisis point of it, so many talk about the gifts and the wisdom that are found in that unfathomable adversity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Frida Kahlo said at the end of the day, 
we can endure so much more than we think we can. And now is the part of our podcast chat where I get to quote Pearl Jam, which is what <laughs> 1992 <laughs> me, that, that's what 12-year-old me lives for. But there is a, there is a Pearl Jam song um, that I always think about where the lyrics are, I have tasted a life wasted and I am never going back again. And that the fuel and the beauty and the joy of that is to taste a life wasted. You know what that is. You you know it. To live it and know it means that you have the experience of it and that's an education. And I I will never go back again. Mm -hmm. I will never go back Mm -hmm. to living a life wasted. Mm -hmm. And I think if if there is any value in our hearts being clawed to pieces by the things that happen to us by the mere virtue of being alive and being Mm -hmm. human, Mm -hmm. it is that we learn more about our capacity and we learn how we might be wrong about ourselves. Mm. I, I, 15 years ago, I didn't think I was brave. Mm-hmm. 15 mm-hmm. years ago, I didn't think I was strong. And 15 years later and all the versions of me through that time, it, I, I don't tell myself that I'm not brave and not strong anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's a gift. I was just about to say, what an amazing gift. What a gift. Mm. And you are right. When you mm. are in it, you can't see that. And yeah. a process, it is a process to, to, mm. to come to do to come to terms with, um, when you, when you are, you know, wading through the thick of mm. grief, um, mm. and, um, or, or hardship of any, of any kind, but when you of are, any in the kind, thick, yeah. yeah, it's very, very difficult to see, but to, you know, and, and, and with, the novel if and if anyone can take from it that um that self-worth I think is what mm. I wish more people would have you know that feeling of um yes okay like you say you are human these things will come at you you know um you can't control what you will go yes. through to a certain extent yeah yeah but to have that inner strength that self-worth you know, is something that, um, yeah, of of course, you know, if we all had it from an early age, that would be, that would be great. But to whatever stage then learn that Mm. I think is invaluable. And that's the gift. I think Mm. that you can, you can be given to find that strength and to think, Mm. okay, yeah, I'm not the same person I was before, but aren't I pretty damn awesome now? Like, and yes, and there's yes. still tomorrow. We're not, you know, we're not yes. gone yet. We've still got we're more time. Never, <laughs> that's right. And that was that was something that um that was something that underpinned a lot of the story development as I was writing Esther, um, because something that she shares with her dad, Jack, is this love of the stars. And they sit in a star shack together in Tasmania and they watch the different constellations and uh, Esther, you know, she grew up in the beautiful shadow, but the shadow, nevertheless, of her beloved older sister, Aura, you know, always feeling like 
so many younger siblings do, like just constantly running after Aura, constantly calling out, wait for me. Like, I don't want to be left behind. Wait mm-hmm. for me. And so mm-hmm. at this inevitable tipping point in Esther and Aura's siblinghood, when Aura is sort of going into her teens and Esther is still a child and she's not physically developing at the same rate and that sort of thing, their dad, Jack, uh, comes up with the idea that he's going to create space club to try and make that cool for Esther to be like, Oh, I've got but, space club, even though oh. is like going to parties. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and one of the, one of the, one of the things that really underpins the, the story development through everyone and, and that I try to bring to the page through mentions of the stars and space club and, conversations that Esther has with many different people about either the stars or even the DNA in old stories and old fairy tales is that none of us are fixed. None of us are a still point. We are always changing and change is always possible. And it, it might not be wanted. We might not want to change and it might feel really hard. But there is a there is a freedom that we can give ourselves when we choose to feel the fullness of something as hard and terrifying to reckon with as grief, because we are grieving something that we cannot bear, something that we have lost, something that has traumatized us and we can't bear to process that. We can't bear to feel the fullness of it because it's horrible. And at the same time, the, it's sort of like a it's sort of like a cosmic payoff for being human. If you can find the will to feel those depths of grief. Mm. The payoff is that you also can feel the depth of joy, even if it's in the most fleeting of moments, even mm-hmm. if it's the quietest moment where not a lot happens, but it's an exchange with somebody dear to you. And that joy can flood you, but you can't feel that flood if you are numbed, if you have numbed and tapped out of your life. Mm-hmm. And the, the the change that's always happening is if we can find the courage to feel the fullness of the things that are really hard and unbearable, it means that we are likely going to feel the fullness of the things that give us resilience to keep going for like joy and love and beauty. And in that way, change happens. In that way, we transform ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's so freeing when we feel stuck to remember that no matter how much it feels so, we are never fully as fixed in place as we think we are. We are not mm-hmm. still points. We're mm-hmm. moving all the time. And that's what a ride. You know, what a mm. what a joyful roller coaster that we are all on because and but that realization as well you know it makes you then value the good times even more when they are happening because we are always changing and things are always moving you know exactly so much that that um, perspective I think that's the exactly 
the the key. There's an, there's an incredible writer, Karen Walrand, who says that, and I'll paraphrase her here, but she says that she will never apologize for celebrating joy and beauty in her life and in the world because that's what fuels her activism. That's how she continues to show up for herself and others. And I think there is so much in that for everybody. I think there's mm-hmm. so much truth in that for mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm. Ugh. I mean, I could happily just keep talking about <laughs> all of this. I find it so fascinating. But obviously, you know, all we are talking about the book. We are, you know, um, mm. talking about Essa. But I feel like we can elevate that to exactly what we're we're doing now and talking about life and people mm. and just you know mm. living and how to make it just that bit more bearable sometimes you know and, yes um, absolutely you know that the, we are I, allowed I, to give ourselves joy like we are allowed mm-hmm. to do things mm-hmm. that bring us joy we are allowed to say yes we are allowed to say yes to doing what Esther does and going to Copenhagen and we can say yes to following her nose and essentially being sort of low-key creepy and turning up in the Faroe Islands to tell her sister's (laughs) entire network of people that she's there but doesn't give them a heads up she just rocks up and she does that because something in her gut is like there is goodness here and you have to follow it to be brave. There is such an enormous mm. power in being brave and saying mm. yes and saying yes without guilt and shame being in the driver's yes. seat. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. I mean, I wanted to talk about the cover with you, the beautiful illustrations. Yes. I wanted to talk about yes. even, you know, inside the book with the gorgeous, mm. you know, drawings at the start of each chapter. I wanted to talk about um, tattooing and exactly what you were saying mm. before about, you know, expressing, you know, the storytelling as a sort of visual mm. representation of that. I feel like there is so much more to talk about. Olivia has reminded me, we need to talk about biscuits briefly, though. Okay, so my chosen biscuit is a staple that I grew up with here in Australia. Um I there are probably many biscuit companies in in Australia, but our kind of version of um, McVitie's, like in Manchester, I wasn't very far away from the McVitie's factory, mm. and that that biscuit smell was just always so good. <laughs> and there's such a staple, right? There's such a staple in uh, Britain, and our version in Australia of that kind of staple company is called Arnott's. Mm-hmm. And uh, some listeners may know Arnott's for the uh, famous uh, Aussie export Tim Tams, mm-hmm. uh, which many, I'm sure, Australian care packages are full of that are being sent around the world. But my <laughs> biscuit of choice today is one that I grew up on, and it is the humble iced vovo. Mm-hmm. And the iced vovo is a, um, it is like a small kind of palm-sized rectangular, uh, you, you sort of bog-standard biscuit. Uh, maybe it, maybe it's like a milk biscuit or just like a sugar. Like it's just it, it's just a sweet biscuit. Mm-hmm. But what makes the iced vovo, the iced vovo, is that on the top 
it has a drip of jam with icing on either side of the jam covered with desiccated coconuts. Uh, mm. And I feel like, I feel like it's the sleeper of iconic Australian biscuits that everybody mm. uh, grew up with. And it's sort of like the quiet brother or sister to the Tim Tam. <laughs> and I, I loved them. I loved them so much as a kid. It's biting into it and feeling the combination because I'm a big texture eater. Mm-hmm. It's the combination of the crunch of the biscuit with the chewiness of the jam strip and then the melty, pure ethanol sugar of Oof. the icing with then the little sort of like stick in your teeth coconutty bit. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's just, I, yeah, yeah the, so the I loyal it. kind of overlooked, but always their sibling yes. to the tip. Always there. Yeah. So much though, loved it so much though, that um, I found a way to include it in Esther's life, in Esther's story, in the, in the novel. So she does not go to Copenhagen without a packet of ice <laughs> in her bag, in her bag. And they come in good handy in a pretty terrible moment when she needs sustenance. Yeah. sustenance. yeah. So the, mor- the moral of the story is ice bovos save your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is That's not commissioned by Arnott's. Can I do? Yeah. Not yeah, we're not Arnott's we're not sponsored in any way. Other biscuits no, are we're available. Not <laughs> yes, absolutely. But that is that is my true love for the humble ice Amazing. Bobo. Amazing. Okay, I need mm. to get my hands on some of these, definitely. <laughs> oh. Thank you so, know, so I hope, much. I, oh, a pleasure. A pleasure, Lauren. Just an absolute pleasure. Honestly, I just, um, yeah, no, as you well know, I can't, I can't get emotional, but I genuinely appreciate the, the insight (laughs) I do. And it's wonderful to talk to you. I really want Esther to just soar. I mean, she, she already is. I just want people to have the privilege of knowing her. And, uh, and that genuinely is what it is. It is a privilege to, to read, oh, to be there with you. her. And I would, I just want people to, to, I just want to share her, <laughs> you know, I just want people to I, know her. On a, I mean, on a personal note and without this, oh God, I don't mean this to sound trite in any way. This is bit, like, this is genuine. I, I went to Manchester, I went to the UK, uh, to follow my ancestry, my, my Celtic ancestry. And I moved to Manchester to follow this dream of this thing I've known about myself to become a writer and, and living in Manchester gave me the pluck and walking around the streets of London on my Virgin rail ticket for day trips gave me the wonder. And I, I genuinely would not be the writer that I am without that experience and without living in England as luckily and as I did, it was such a privilege. And Mm -hmm. it, you know, on a personal note, you know, my quiet but also boisterous desire is that people in the UK love Esther too. Mm -hmm. It it feels very full circle. meaningful to me just in a very just in a very personal way you know Mm, so mm. uh 
uh, I, I, you know, I think we, I think we got our first sort of um, proof copy review from a British reader recently and she put the most beautiful review on Instagram and I ran around like a soccer player with my (laughs) you know shirt over my head although like not literally just sort of honking with joy because um just in a very individual personal context it's um you know there's so much of my heart that is Mm. in the UK and Mm. so uh it's beautiful to be able to talk to you and to and to know that you love Esther as you do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think that's possibly part of, again, you know, why I love it so much. It's like, you know, she's coming home kind of thing. There is this, this connection there that even though, um, you know, it's not set in Manchester, it's not set in London. There's definitely, there is a connection there. And I, I, um, I have no doubt that, you know, just a few miles between Australia and, and England, but that <laughs> again, you're just connecting up all of these these readers, and yes. I think um, I love that. Yes, it has that full circle moment for you as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And that's all for this week. As Lauren and Holly said, we will make sure to record another episode after Esther Wilding has been out in the UK for a little bit to give everyone time to read it so we can dive into the spoilers. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to head over to Amazon Prime Video on the 4th of August to watch the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart TV series based on Holly's first novel and international bestseller. As a treat, WF House have kindly shared the first chapter of the Seven Skins of Esther Wilding audiobook, which we've added on to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoy it and have a great Monday, everyone. The first skin, death. If you want change, raise your sword, raise your voice. Chapter One. On the afternoon that Esther Wilding drove homeward along the coast, a year after her sister had walked into the sea and disappeared, the light was painfully golden. It was March, a liminal time on the island when the tides began to change. Cooling sea breezes blew through the blue gums. Bobs of bull seals left their summer-born pups to go hunting for food. Drifts of black swans began building their nests for winter hatching. By March, the Cygnus constellation shone low on the horizon, hidden by daylight. Esther shifted down a gear and eased her foot off the accelerator to watch the sun cast tips of the sea in gold. This had been Aura's favourite time of year. When they were teenagers, she'd called it the golden in-between, her voice full of wonder. We can immerse ourselves in the sea and float our bodies between what's above and below, Starry. This is when the veil between worlds is thin and everything you can dream of is possible. Whenever Aura talked about it, she got a mischievous glint in her eyes, whereas Esther couldn't stop herself from protesting that there was no veil because there was only one world, this one. Why didn't Aura get that? My little scientist? Aura would inevitably tease, rolling her wrists as she spoke, wooden bangles clacking. I'll find the dreamer in you one day. A gust came through Esther's wound-down window, carrying the blended scent of home eucalyptus, salt and wood smoke. She tilted her face away, 
as if she might be able to escape it. Beside her, the turquoise sea shimmered. All kelp danced rhythmically in the push and pull of tiny waves curling clear on the white sand. Our bodies, our bodies. Esther gripped the wheel as she drove over a rise and around the corner that brought her into full view of the seven granite boulders in the far distance, covered in striking orange lichen and algae. Aura singing, our bodies, our bodies, as she twirls through the shallows, her ankles embraced by fingers of kelp. Esther jiggled a knee, bit her thumbnail down to the quick. At the taste of blood, she pressed her thumb into her fist and squeezed, sighing with irritation. She flicked the radio on, and after a moment of tinny pop music, switched it off. For the last 12 months, Esther's life on the west coast of the island had been an escape. Living and working on ancient river and rainforest country had been the life of oblivion she'd gone there in search of. It was a place of no memories other than the ones she made and remade every day. On the western edge of the island, on the edge of the world, Esther had found a place where she could breathe. But after she'd set off that morning and turned at the intersection where the dirt road met the national highway and the rainforest began to thin and open into dry pastoral country, Esther's chest had tightened. Even when the clean scent of coastal eucalyptus started to come through the air vents in her ute, she still couldn't breathe easy. All day Esther had felt outside her body, as if she was watching herself drive. She'd learned the topography of the coastal road when she was 15 and Aura, 18, had taught her to drive. Esther watched again as her hand moved the stick through the gears while her feet worked the pedals around the bends watched herself lean into the corner which prompted her to look for the giant blue gum on the cliff with the swing hanging from its bow. Slumped inwards to clatter over the low bridge, leaned back to see the sailboats moored around the rock pool with the pink shells and green seaweed in its folds. She sat forward before the next unseen hill, eased her foot off the accelerator before the next hidden dip. This was the way they'd always come home. Together. Windows down, salty air in their faces, the floor of their ute littered with chuppa-chup wrappers and Aura's tally-ho papers. Seashells and Banksia seed pods lining the dash. Stereo loud, singing Stevie Nicks, Janis Joplin, Melanie Safka. Esther's heart contracting and expanding with such yearning and awe for her big sister, though she'd been sitting right beside her. Esther pressed her foot down on the gas and inwardly cringed at her childlike inability to accept how the sea... Wind, trees and stars could still exist without aura. And yet. All the wild waves rolled in. Black swans dabbled along the marshes. And there they stood. The seven boulders huddled together, holding the warmth of the day's sunlight deep inside like a secret. Despite her emotional resistance, Esther's body remembered the way home. To where she'd always been, first and foremost. Aura Wilding's little sister. As she came over the last rise, Esther glared at the sight of a sculpture by the road, next to the sea, of a bikini-clad woman, hands on hips, hair flying, smiling. She didn't have feet. Both of her legs disappeared at the knees into a stone semblance of the sea, engraved with a shouty, Welcome to Binalong Bay. The sculpture had been in place welcoming and farewelling people for as long as Esther could remember. Growing up, being prone to a touch of claustrophobia, seeing the Binalong Bay girl always gave Esther sweaty palms and a shortness of breath. Her frozen smile, 
hair, bikini and legs in a stone sea, forever trapped. Esther hadn't known how to manage her reaction to the sight of the sculpture until she was a teenager, when Aura had taken around the ute for one of their driving lessons. I know how the sculpture could make you feel joy, Aura said as she drove. Esther shook her head, scowled. Aura looked sidelong at her, one eyebrow raised, afternoon light pouring over her shoulders. What if I do this? How about now? As they drove past the sculpture, Aura wound down her window and thrust out her arm, hand-gripping an imaginary sword hilt. Sisters of seal and swan skins, Sela and Ela, she crowed. Raise your swords and your voices. A peal of Aura's laughter carried on the wind. Come on, Starry, your turn. Esther tightened her grip on the steering wheel, sitting where her sister had sat, hands where her sisters had been. The Binalong Bay girl shrank in her rearview mirror. As she neared the headland and Salt Bay, Esther's head pounded. The blinding hangover she'd awoken with that morning and had been fighting off with paracetamol was gaining on her. She'd been on the road for nearly seven hours, including breaks she'd had to take when she couldn't suppress the nausea any longer. As much as she just wanted the drive to be done, she resented every shrinking metre that separated her from the awaiting homecoming. Her vision started to prickle at the edges, dark spots of fatigue and blurry anxiety. She glanced across at the bags on the floor of the passenger side, trying to remember which one held the paper packet of mixed lollies that she'd picked up at her last servo stop. A sugar hit would keep her going. She eased off the accelerator, took her eyes off the road for seconds. Everything happened at once. Something exploded against the windscreen, which shattered but held. The sound of the explosion made Esther scream. The weight of impact and the fright of it caused her to swerve off the road, press her full weight on the brake and fishtail on the gravel. A sickly smell of something primal, bloody, of rubber, something burning. Esther lurched to a stop in a cloud of dust and grit. She breathed fast, heart pounding, body shaking. Confused and disoriented, she reached for the door, pushed it open and stood up on wobbly legs. Her mind couldn't take in what she was seeing. The wreckage of her windscreen. The bowl of crumpled metal where moments ago the roof of her ute had been, as if it were no more solid than wet clay being moulded by light fingertips. She stared at the front ruins of her ute. The windscreen glass was still popping, still shattering, still holding. In the middle of it, a black swan lay dreadfully still, blood-covered its graceful neck slack, drooping. She cried out in horror, pressed her palms against her temples and looked around to get her bearings, slowly came to recognise the sheltered grove of blue gums by the headland, where she'd spent most of her teens scrambling over the seven silver boulders with Aura to dive into the hidden lagoon within. The car park was empty. Esther was alone. She tried to think calmly and give herself clear instructions. Check the swan. Call the police. Do you call the police if a swan falls out of the sky and hits your ute? If not the police, who do you call? Aura. Her sister's name came unbidden. Esther's stomach cramped. She doubled over, nausea and bile overwhelming her. Reached out to steady herself against her ute. Esther? She startled at the familiar voice shouting her name. 
A car skidded to a stop on the gravel behind her. Esther blinked in confusion as Tina Turner, all hair and black pleather, fishnets, denim and dazzle, got out of the car. Esther? The woman gently braced Esther's arms, searching her face. Her eyes flashed with alarm. You're all right? You're all right. Esther stared blankly at the woman's face under the makeup and wig. I saw Kilarunya fall. I saw it happen, the woman said, gesturing at the fallen black swan on Esther's ute and at her own parked car, engine still running, door hanging open. Beneath the teased caramel heights of her wig and the assault of blue eyeshadow, pink blush and coral red lipstick, Esther suddenly recognised Aura's best and oldest friend. Nin? she asked in bewilderment. You're all right, Starry. Nin's voice softened. Just a bit of shock. You're all right. Esther made a strangled sound, something between a wail and a laugh, fear mixed with relief to be in Nin's soothing, familiar presence. Come here. You're shaking like a sea snail. Nin rubbed Esther's arms. Esther became aware that she was shivering. The sun had vanished behind thick clouds, turning the sea from turquoise to slate. The cold wind stung her eyes. Get in my car. I'll put the heater on. What about... Esther looked at the swan, struggling to bear the sight of it unmoving. She wrapped her arms around herself. I'll check. Let's just get you warm first. Nin bundled Esther into her car and blasted the heater. She reached into the back seat for a blanket that she wrapped around Esther's shoulders, shut the door and tottered over the gravel in her red patent leather heels to Esther's ute for a closer look at the swan. Watching her, Esther blinked hard against her welling tears, against the shock of how good it felt to be steadied by Nin's big eyes and firm hands, to be reassured by the defiant set of her shoulders. It was how she'd grown up, braced between Nin and Aura, a pup certain of her place in the world, for a time. Esther reached up to touch her forehead and winced as she felt a painful, swelling lump, closed her eyes and leaned her head back on the seat. Esther watching Nin and Aura, on the beach, arms entwined, strings of iridescent shells around their necks. Esther, always a stride or two behind, running after them. Wait for me! Wait for me! Must have been terrifying, Nin said as she opened the door and sank into the driver's seat. The wind slammed the door after her, buffeting the car with its strengthening howls. I don't know what happened, Esther mumbled. I was driving and then it was like a bomb went off and then I wasn't driving anymore. I was stopped, in my smashed ute with a black swan on my windscreen. As Esther heard herself speak, she looked at Nin's face, which was radiant with empathy. A bubble rose in the back of her throat. I killed a swan. Esther choked up. It was just a random accident. Nin reached over to squeeze Esther's hand, her pleather dress squeaking. Esther narrowed her eyes at Nin. You've never believed anything is random. Or an accident. We don't need to get into all the ways you could interpret this, right? Not with what you've already got on your plate. Nin's words hit Esther like cold water. She remembered why she was there. What was ahead of her. 
she took in Nin's Tina Turner costume, realising where Nin was headed. You're on your way, she said flatly. To the party? Esther made air quotes with her fingers. Tina Turner. She pointed at Nin's outfit. I get it now. Nin and Aura dancing down the hallway of the shell house and out the front door to their first high school fancy dress party. Tina Turner and Cher, hand in hand. Mum's already there, helping set up. I said I'd go early and join her. Nin adjusted her wig. We need to get you to a doctor. I'm fine. It wasn't a question. I'm fine, Esther said again. It's enough dealing with tonight and now... Esther took a moment. Yeah, but I'm here, aren't I? You're not doing this alone, Nin said. Esther could only nod. The wind nudged and tugged at the black swan. We can't leave her here, she said. We won't. Nin started to put the car in gear. Esther gripped her arm, panicked. Nin? Her face crumpled. A black swan just flew into my ute. On the afternoon of my sister's memorial, Esther heaved for air. I can't do this. Nin placed one palm on Esther's chest and the other on her own, breathing deeply and steadily. In, then out. In, then out. One breath at a time. She breathed in sync with Esther until she settled. One step at a time. Nin put her hands back on the steering wheel and inched her car towards the ute. Esther fought the urge to lean over and hug her, to apologise for being gone, to ask Nin how her life was now. Did the black hole pull her towards it too? How did she bear it? Did she still make necklaces from shells the colour of opals with the women in her family? The same women who'd once taught Esther and Aura they could call to swans and sing to seals. Thank you, was all Esther said. Nin left the engine running while she gathered Esther's belongings from her ute, carrying them back to her car in one hand while using the other to hold her wig down against the force of the wind. After she'd opened the door and put the bags on the back seat, Esther offered her the blanket, warm from her body. Starry, Nin began to protest. Esther motioned again for Nin to take it. As Nin walked back to the ute with the blanket in hand, Esther looked away, chided herself for cowardice. A few moments later, she felt the weight of Nin placing the swan in the boot. Is that everything? Nin asked when she got back into the car. Esther looked over her bags on the back seat and nodded. We'll sort your ute out tomorrow. It'll be fine here. Now, Nin said, taking the handbrake off. Let's get you to the doctor. No medical centre's going to be open now, Esther argued, her forehead pounding. You know I'm not taking you to a medical centre. Nin pulled out onto the coast road and drove away. Esther's stomach pinwheeled with nerves. Nin glanced over at her. The swan's not a sign, she said tenderly. Don't make this harder on yourself than it is.